Hey, it's Elise. And this is How to Disappoint Your Mom. It's a podcast about people who didn't want to regret their life, even if that meant rejection by the people they love most. This is part two of the conversation with my wife, Carmen Wright-Smith. And it's the conclusion to season one of How to Disappoint Your Mom. The conversation we've had with so many of you in messages has been really touching, and we don't want it to end. So Carmen decided to start an email newsletter to continue the conversation with those of you who are grappling with really what it means to leave the evangelical church and the hope and the grief that that brings. And you can find that newsletter at carmenwrightsmith.com newsletter. Unlike mass newsletters, this one will be more intimate, and it's just for people coming out of the evangelical church. So, like I said, if you're interested in that, the link will be in the description for the podcast. I feel like this is a fitting end to season one because so many of the stories in this season were about people who reached a precipice in their life and felt like it was over because, really, their life as they knew it was over. Like when from episode two, when she confronted her mom and her dad about the sexual abuse and beating that happened in her childhood, that was a point of no return for her, just like it was for Kyra in episode three, when she had a panic attack moments before telling her husband she was getting a divorce. And part two of this conversation is our answer to the question, what is it like on the other side of that precipice? And I'm happy to say The other side has treated us pretty well. I guess it's like they call it the Ikea effect in psychology because when people build their own furniture, even if they're barely building it, they're just putting it together, they love it so much more. So if you have a piece, a hand in building something, you love it that much more. And that's what I feel about all of those relationships. I feel the Ikea effect, which is... I know both of us, Kyra and I, my mom and I, many people like um, one of our close friends who just was there with us through this whole process and your sister, Kelsey, and so many, I guess I think of, there's that phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. Even though we were so alone through so much, it also feels that to get to where we are, I think back on all of the relationships that we've either been able to build up since then or that made it through the whole process. And I think one of the blessings of being gay is that I treasure all of those relationships so much more because I do not take them for granted. I think of my cousin who gave us advice through the wedding process. I think of one of our close friends who from the moment she found out we were gay, had just such deep empathy to hear where we were. I think of Kyra, who has had such vulnerability and humbleness to be able to talk through all of those hurts that happened. I think of my mom, who has, you know, worked hard, I think, and fought hard to have compassion and love and to build a relationship with us. And that was one of the reasons the wedding was so much so meant so much because when people showed up at that wedding you I didn't take a single seat for granted and I don't think because of being gay I don't think I take a single relationship for granted because I know what it's like to lose some relationships and 
that to me is something that the process of being gay taught me. I think though, a second thing I would say on the accepting of other people and how that was a foundation for building the relationships is that the second foundation for building those relationships was that we went through a major acceptance of ourselves during those 12 months leading up to the wedding. Really, it's hard because as part of those sentences that we wrote out, the first sentence we wrote was, I am gay, but their reactions are not my fault. How they react is their responsibility. It is not my role to affect or change them. And we had written out this list and we decided we were just going to go ahead and read the list out loud every day for a month. And we couldn't read that first sentence. Why don't you share about what it was like for you to read that sentence? Saying the words, I am gay, was so difficult for both of us because there was no more denying the fact that we were outside the circle of belonging with those words. We thought we could still belong in some of the structures that we were given and in, in never having said, when we came out and never having said, you know, I'm gay, instead saying we're in a relationship. Part of it was that we were human. <laughs> and to say I am gay was admitting to the thought, the, the thought that we were handed in our youth that gay people weren't human. And so to say the words, I am gay. Can you explain more what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, I guess I, I remember an easy way to explain it is that I was sitting at a, uh, a play that my sister was in and there was a homeschool mom sitting in the row in front of me. And she turned around, she was talking about one of her sons who was off at college. And she said, his roommates, I can't even believe who he chose for roommates to say, atheist, a Muslim, and a gay. And it was clear that it was in that order of negativity it was that the atheist was the best. I mean, still bad, but an atheist was the best. And the Muslim was a little, was worse. And the gay person was the worst. And I think it was just that there were these certain classes of people who we, you didn't interact with and didn't have as part of your life, which is why I, I, we didn't even meet, I didn't even meet someone who was gay until I was 20 at college. I'd never met a single gay person before that. And the people that I knew were quote unquote ex-gay. When did you meet the first openly gay person? In oh my God, uh, grad, school. Because, grad school. Yeah, because even at Bradley, there, there, there were some people who like told me that kind of came out, kind of didn't come out. They weren't they weren't out. And so the first openly queer person that I ever met was in grad school. And it was the kind of culture surrounding, you know, gay people. Um, so in Christianity, the culture surrounding gays was that you couldn't even talk about it. Um, Ellen, like the only thing I knew about Ellen was that she was gay. And so she was dangerous. 
And whenever something, I remember when Same Love came out on the radio, I would switch the radio channel immediately when the song came on. Like you couldn't listen to anything that had to do with being gay because there was that agenda there. There was that tainted, you were going to get tainted. You were going to go down a slippery slope. I think going through that transition of accepting other people, accepting ourselves in that 12 months leading up to the wedding enabled us to really fully live into those incredible moments that happened in that year. And one of them was starting with um, my proposal to you, which was one of the first times that where we were sharing a moment with other people about our relationships that was purely celebratory. And it was perfect. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a total surprise. We were up in Michigan along the lake and my sister Kelsey was there and we had a few friends there too and we decided to go on this hike um, along Lake Michigan Dunes and Elise and some others had walked ahead we brought up the rear so we came over this dune and I thought I saw a pier lined with lights I was like wow that is just so beautiful and so I started coming down the dunes and I started walking through the lights and I realized that they were all candles and Elise was kneeling at the end of this candlelit walkway and I suddenly realized what was happening and she gave me a ring and it was wonderful and then we went back and celebrated it was the first time that we could be happy again that we didn't have to cushion other people from our love. We didn't have to take care of other people. We could let them witness what we had and what we cherished in each other and give them the gift of our love for each other. And I think the wedding was just an extension of, there was that proposal. There was, um, when you proposed to me, we were on a sailing trip in the Sea of Cortez and It was a day where we had swam with seals for the first time. We'd sailed along this pot of dolphins and seen whales in the morning when we woke up in the cove. And I think that was another moment where it was just pure joy. It was just honoring our love, honoring our commitment, honoring the joy that we bring each other. And that the wedding was just an extension of those moments. We had like a, we had a wedding in this little storybook town. It's one of those lighthouse towns on like Michigan. We had parked our tiny house up there for the summer, just a half a mile off of the lake. And there's a lighthouse peninsula at the mouth of a river that leads up into the historic town. And it goes, you know, within a few blocks of this old Carnegie, this historic Carnegie library turned art museum. And the second floor had all original wood floors from, I can't remember the 18 or early 1900s and floor to ceiling windows that looked out on the historic downtown and the river. And we had strung up these willow branches over the area where the ceremony was. And I remember walking in, we chose to walk into a song called My Moon by Mary Lambert. 
instead of having a wedding party, we had asked because we love music and because all of our friends and some of our family um, were musicians, everyone participated, not everyone, but the people we would have had in our wedding party participated in the music instead. So that each piece was really like a central part of the ceremony. As we walked into My Moon by Mary Lambert, the bridge of the song says, I made a tidal wave just to get close to you. And we chose to walk in right when the bridge is going. I remember we just wept at the end of the aisle because we felt the weight of our journey in that moment. And we felt what it would cost us, what it had cost us to be together. And I think for me, I felt in that moment that there are things in life that are worth fighting for. And that when you find them, it is worth whatever it will take. And for me, one of those things is our love. And I felt the weight of our fight. And I felt that we had made it in that moment, that we had made it through it all. That was what that phrase, I made a tidal wave just to get close to you. And the song is this metaphor about how the gravity of the moon affects the tides of the ocean. And from that moment in the wedding, right when we made it to the end of the aisle, there's this photograph that I love from our wedding photographer of this row of guests and all of them just have like snot dripping down their face and they're passing. They're all strangers. They don't know each other, but they're passing tissues. Every single person in that row came up to us later and said what the wedding meant to them. And for one person, she said she was um, a teacher of yours, actually from the homeschool co-op. And she said, she had had like the love of her life. Who her husband passed away from cancer. She said, "The way Elise looks at you is the way that he looked at me, and it brought me back to those moments with the love of my life." And another friend sitting in that row said, "This wedding was hope for me that I could find a love like this." And a third person sitting in that row said she had come from a similar background. And she had come out and her parents were, she was going through that grieving process. And she said, this wedding was healing for me that I can find peace again. Makes me cry. <laughs> and I think it was just an incredible moment to share with everyone who was there that we have these things and these people in our lives that are worth fighting for. And the way that people have fought for us and that we have fought for each other. And it was the shared moment that we all had in that room where we all recognized this journey that we're all on to find this love and to fight for love. And, and I don't think that's just romantic love at all. And how much love can cost us. That day I felt, and, I, and I've always felt that it was so worth it. Say I love you and give you a kiss, but we're separated by a room. <laughs> <laughs>
And we had the most perfect first dance because we danced to Grow As We Go by Ben Platt, which was the first dance, which was the song that we danced to on the first night that we moved into our tiny house. And so it was like going from dancing out there in the mulch in front of our tiny house to this historic Carnegie library with all of, you know, many of our friends and family there. Definitely not all. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> and I think even that day in itself was a reminder of what it cost us to be together because, you know, between my extended family on my mom's side um, came from Hawaii and Alaska and Florida and like all the different quarters of the United States. But your, you know, between your immediate family or an extended family, you probably have a hundred people and only five people were there. I would love to wrap up by talking about at the very beginning of our relationship, really the first conversation we ever had, we were making gluten-free pepperoni pizza in your parents' house, <laughs> sitting on the kitchen floor. <laughs> at like 11 p.m. Yes. And you said, well, go ahead. What'd you say? I said, you are everything that I am looking for in husband. Why can't we get married? <laughs> and it was the first time that nothing made sense to me. That all the reasons I had heard, none of it, none of it pertained to what I felt towards you. And I, I saw how, how you changed me, how you made me a better person. And it just, it didn't make sense why we couldn't be together. So I would love to hear all the ways in which I would have made a great husband, <laughs> which is, as I say, I would love to hear what it was about me that was everything you were looking for <laughs> in a husband. <laughs> Actually. And then I'll tell you. Yeah, you were a lot what, more than what I, I had low expectations. Let me tell you. Let's see. What are all the things I love about you? You are one of the most compassionate people that I know. I have always loved how you listen to others. You deeply listen. You approach people with openness and curiosity, and you ask questions because you really want to know and you really want to hear, and it's motivated by nothing else than just hearing them. And I so admire that. And you think in such a fascinating way. <laughs> and it's so different from me that I absolutely love being married to you because my world has gotten bigger because I now not only have how I look at the world, but I have how you look at the world too. And so my sight has expanded. You see me, you delighted in who I am, just absolutely love me. You love all of me. You really you love every single part of me. And even like, I don't feel like I have to hide any part of myself. And even the hard stuff. And I think too, because we had to fight so hard, I know that it's like, 
we have proved to each other over and over again that we are choosing each other. And so I have absolutely no qualms about your faithfulness <laughs> to me because you lost so much in the process of, of loving me that I just, it's not even a question that you will, that you chose me. Do I check off your boxes for a husband, my love? <laughs> yeah, all right, here's my list. You ready? Uh-huh. So I, when I was thinking about what it was for me, for me, every relationship is about who I want to become. So I'm choosing someone, whether it's to be a friend or to marry, that is someone who can teach me something that I feel like is a deficit um, that I would like to grow in myself. And one of those things for you was vulnerability because I tend to be a lot more closed off than you. And you really taught me how to be much more vulnerable. And one of the examples of this was we had after we, we recently moved to Austin, Texas, and within a month or two of moving here, we had a dinner party with nine strangers. So we didn't really know them. We'd only met them once or we met them on Bumble BFF and they didn't know each other. And someone said, well, we should all go around and share three things we're passionate about. And most people would have been like, I'm passionate about Fortnite and pickleball and uh, Thai food. <laughs> but you happen to be one of the first people that went. And the third thing that you shared is that you were passionate about people overcoming sexual shame because you'd experienced a lot of sexual shame yourself. And then this, it was one of, it was a magical moment in the month because then as people went around almost every second or third person shared something about sexual shame and there was no weird vibe in the room at all. It was just, you had tapped into something where so many people have sexual shame. And because you had been yourself, you had given them permission to share something vulnerable about themselves. And that is a magical quality that I certainly did not have when we became a couple and have learned and grown in because of you is that the more you share something vulnerable about yourself, the more you're giving other people permission to be themselves. And that rolls into another thing, which is that you have like zero pretense, <laughs> which is totally the opposite of me. <laughs> if I'm in some social setting, I'm like, I follow the rules pretty much. And you do not. <laughs> well, I remember in particular, there was one, we we're having like a formal sit down dinner with my aunt and uncle and some of um, my aunt's family. And we hadn't met any of them before and, and dinner starts. And it was kind of one of those things where no one knows each other. So there's this awkward conversation with these long gaps at the beginning. And you had just learned, <laughs> you had just learned that when you swirl wine around, like when you do a wine tasting and you swirl wine around in the cup, the little drips that come down the side are called the legs. And so there was like this gap in conversation, long pause. Carmen picks up her wine glass, swirls it around and goes, hey, nice legs. <laughs> and, like, and everybody laughed and then kind of took a deep breath, relaxed, and just had a great time after that. And it was like, Everyone kind of would have had pretense before that, but you 
having just kind of going into it as you were, no pretense, no pretending to be somebody you weren't, just gave everybody a chance to relax and enjoy themselves. That makes me think of your middle names, which, you know, when you were born, your middle name was Joy. And when we got married, you changed it to Riot. And for me, both of those are true, which is your first name, Carmen, means song or song of. And it is true to me that you're both a song of joy and a song of riot, which is you bring so much joy and so much like peace in being yourself. But then you also um, bring this fire for change, which is something I also, I mean, I didn't, I didn't really, the Smiths are not angry people. And I think anger, <laughs> yeah, okay, you can, a good laugh, go ahead. Okay, I'm good. <laughs> We're not very angry people. And I think anger is a gift that when used well, like really can empower people to change the world around them. And that is a gift that you have brought to my life. And I think that that to live a full life, part of that is to feel the full intensity of feelings around uh, really hard issues that we face. And number five mm-hmm. is you always know where my socks are. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> and what is, what have and you that learned is something recently? that was a really a big deficit for me, <laughs> which is not remembering where my socks are, even if they've been in the same place <laughs> for several years. And what, what new skill have you learned, Elise? <laughs> oh yes. Carmen's taught me the skill that I'm not allowed to say, where's my socks or anything. Or where anything. is the charge cord? Where is blank? I have to look for a solid few minutes before I ask. And sure enough, things are mostly where you left. <laughs> it turns out as, as shocking as it is to learn at 27 years old, things are mostly where you leave them. Um, I think one area where it was not something that you taught me, but something that we did together is we're both dreamers. And both of us, you know, you talked even around the time that you were, are you going to propose to that boy? You talked about how you were so discontented with the picture of life that was given to you and that you wanted so much more than that. And you didn't know how to envision it. But I think that actually speaks to you, you could, you, you maybe couldn't quite envision it yet, but you were someone who had so many more dreams than the life that you were living you just hadn't given yourself permission yet to explore those dreams. And that is something we've done together with building the tiny house, cycling across the United States, sailing the Sea of Cortez, maybe doing the memoir, the podcast, starting the business. We are both dreamers and to be married to someone who matches me in that way is so, it's such a fundamental um, part of who I am that it has been like a blossoming for me And I know that that's like such an important part of our relationship. And last is that you see me. And I think our story is really about choosing carefully who you believe. And for so long, I saw myself through people's eyes who saw me with less grace or who saw me as more damned or more wicked than I saw myself. And living with you, has been a gift because you see current me and a future me with more grace and more charity and more empathy than I see myself. So it's a love that has always called me to deeper and fuller living. And that is what makes 
our marriage so precious to me. I love you. I love you. We probably ought to wrap the podcast, but I love you. And thank you for sharing. Like I said, this is the last episode of season one of the podcast, but I'm excited to say that season two is already in the works. And if you want to be notified when it comes out, you can just follow me on Instagram at the Elise Smith, or you can follow the podcast so that you're notified when a new one comes out. Before I go, I want to say a few thank yous and tell you what's happened to our guest since we talked. First, to you for listening, for reviewing, for messaging. For me, it was the ultimate honor when you saw yourself or someone you know reflected in this podcast. Thanks also to my saintly mother for lending her name to the title and to my mom and dad for being one of my first 15 downloads. For helping me get off the ground, thank you to the magnanimous Trisha Rose Burt. Since talking, Trisha has actually launched her own podcast, No Time to Be Timid, which you will love as much as we all loved her in episode one. Thank you also to Wen Peets, who continues to delight and charm and lead. Since the podcast, she's quit her job in corporate and gone full-time helping others heal their inner child. You can follow her at her website, rebelforaspell.com. Thank you to Kyra, Kelsey, and Carmen for inviting others into a healing journey that you have only just begun. And to my wife for saying, hell no, you better not quit that podcasting workshop. 